welcome to Savvy Sabs Podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Salvati. I have a special guest with me tonight. Shama Sawant is here. She is the city councilor of Seattle. She's an activist and she's a member of Socialist Alternative. Welcome, Shama, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, I know that last year you had a recall that you were dealing with. And I was wondering, I was curious, given the fact that you did not run through the two party system, can you please explain to everyone how did you win to begin with and how did you beat your recall? As many of your viewers might know already, we, meaning Socialist Alternative, the organization that I'm a part of, and I, we won the first city council election that we won in 2013. And then since then, we won our first re-election in 2015, our second re-election in 2019. And then, as you said, we also beat back an attempted recall of us last year. And that recall uh, attack was launched on us less than a year after we had won our second election in 2019. And in fact, uh, not running within the Democratic Republican two-party system was a central aspect of our political strategy to begin with, precisely because we know that for working people, for ordinary people who are struggling in this brutal system of capitalism, the um, running as Democrats or Republicans or what's on offer from the two parties, regardless of their differences, has never worked for working people. And so we, uh, in, in, the, in the era, in the post-Occupy movement era, we wanted to demonstrate that actually American working class consciousness has shifted by leaps and bounds and that there is a tremendous opening for building a genuine left, but that requires actual leadership, courageous leadership that can break from the two-party system that's, you know, as I said, regardless of their differences, stand for the capitalist system, stand for Wall Street interests, and have a political example, an example of political representation that unambiguously fights for working people. And that is the strategy through which we even defeated the recall. I mean, we had everything stacked against us last year in the recall attack. And, uh, you know, along with all the other attacks, we also had an unusual December election aided by the Washington State Supreme Court the ruling class had enabled a December election when people are turned, you know, tuned off politics. They were very sure that they were going to defeat us. But the way we defeated them was by refusing to accept the sort of the political bounds of the democratic the political discourse in the city of Seattle and also refusing to play defense. Instead, we went on the offensive. We collected 15,000 signatures in support of a strong citywide rent control. We, we fought for renters' rights. And in fact, we won some of the biggest victories that we have won for renters' rights. We won last year in the midst of the recall. So really going on the offensive and fighting uh, boldly for the needs of working class is what enabled us to defeat the recall. What advice would you give to people who still want to do the strategy of putting progressives through the Democratic Party. And I bring this up because this has constantly come up over the past couple of years. I think we've seen with the squad that they have not been, you know, fighting for us. They said they were going to go to the mat. They were going to take on the Democratic Party establishment. We have not seen that happen. 
We've seen, seen them vote along with them when it comes to voting for $40 billion to send to Ukraine. We've seen them vote along with them with funding the police. And they didn't want to force the vote for Medicare for all during the time of a pandemic. What advice would you give for people who still want to do that strategy? And the reason why I ask that is because us over at RBN, we don't believe that that works anymore. We believe that we should be putting 80% of our energy into direct action and mutual aid. And if you're gonna do electoral politics, I'm talking about running as an independent or running third party, but mainly focusing on the local level because that's where I feel you can implement the most change. But for people who still want to do that strategy, the Justice Democrats model, what advice would you give to them? Because I just don't see this working in D.C. Uh, I, it, it's not going to work anywhere. In fact, in a let, and let's come back to the question of local versus what happens at the federal level in a second. But in terms of what we can say, what arguments we can present to people who might think that, well, yeah, I agree with you about the Democratic Party's failures and their betrayals, but what other options do I have? I think what happened with the Roe v. Wade ruling, this utterly shameful ruling from the Supreme Court, that issue is actually quite a, a clarifying issue to understand why we need to reject the this, uh, the Republican-Democrat setup and really fight for a new party for the working class. Because while on the one hand, it was the Republican and the right wing that carried out a relentless decades-long campaign to defeat Roe v. Wade, and you know, they, and, and it really they, they have been the instigators of this campaign against abortion rights. It's also true that the Democratic Party utterly failed to provide any kind of fight back. They had 50 years. The Democratic Party and their NGO affiliates, all the women's organizations, liberal feminist organizations that uh, stand with the Democratic Party and have used this dead end strategy of aligning themselves with the Democrats. Uh, using the uh, legalistic methods which have never worked, uh, what they have shown is that they are they are completely incapable and unwilling to do what is needed to fight for our basic rights. I mean, in this day and age, we know this is the 21st century, the basic right, healthcare right for reproductive access, you know, and bodily autonomy. If the Democrats have not been capable of fighting for that, then what else could they possibly fight for? Not only did the Biden administration and the congressional Democrats not mount even a semblance of a fight back once the, you know, the memo was leaked? They had months to carry, you know, to build rallies, marches. They could have brought their real political base to bear against the right. They did not do that. But not only did they not do that, the entire last five decades are the epitome of the Democrats refusing to stand up for abortion rights. At any time when they had the, the White House and the two houses of Congress, they could have codified Roe v. Wade, and they did not. So I would say it is a fool's errand to keep holding our breath that maybe one day the Democrats will shape up. In the meanwhile, the oppressed are facing even more dire attacks on their rights in you know, women, the LGBTQ community. The poor and the working class in America have been bearing the brunt of recession after recession, and a bigger and worse recession is around the corner, not to mention the inflation. Look at the sacrifices that people are having to make every time they go to fill their gas tank. Food prices are skyrocketing. Rents have skyrocketed for decades. So in the face of this massive injustice, there is no justification 
for not fighting for a new party for wor the working class. But at the same time, what I would say is that I don't know that our primary audience, you know, in terms of building the left and really building a fight back, I don't know that our primary audience is people who are just going to refuse to move away from them, Democrats. I mean, obviously, we should have continue a dialogue and debate with them, be very honest, but also, um, you know, really um, compassionate to, to the fears that they feel. Uh, but at the same time, understand that there's a whole layer of millions of young people who don't share these illusions of the Democratic Party. But instead, now the problem is that if that in this new period, even though there are tens of millions of young people ready to fight, there is really virtually no political leadership. And that is what we have to really focus on and call out all the leaders who have failed to provide their leadership, provide this leadership, whether it is the squad and the AOC and Pramila Jayapal who have, who have just not been able to provide that leadership or leaders in the labor movement or in social movements. I mean, just take the example of Black Lives Matter. You know, just an incredible street movement, the biggest street movement in US history. And in retrospect, people, young people are correctly, you know, sort of evaluating that the victories won by the Black Lives Matter movement have not been commensurate with the strength of the street movement. Why? Because the leadership, for the most part, failed to fight for the needs of the black community, of black working people, of everybody who wants a society uh, that fights against, clearly against racism. And so uh, at every step of the way, what you see is a whole layer of leaders, and really I will call them gatekeepers, whether it is BLM or the squad, you know, or in the labor movement, and I speak as a rank and file member of the labor movement, a teachers union myself, that at every step of the way, what we face is these so-called leaders, but really what I would call them is gatekeepers to building an effective struggle. And that is where the real fight lies. Again, you know, with the Roe v. Wade, you know, I, I spoke at a rally of thousands of people in Seattle downtown just two days ago. And what did I see? It was a sea of young people who want to fight back but again, there is no leadership and the voices of people like our, my organization, Socialist Alternative, are the few and far between. And those that is the that's a debate that we need to have on the left inside DSA, inside the labor movement. The rank and file of labor has to take up this debate of the need to, to break from the failed strategies of aligning ourselves with the Democrats and at every step of the way, you know, making compromises for uh, in, in favor of the bosses and the ruling class. There also seems to be a bit of hypocrisy uh, with the with the Democratic Party because Nancy Pelosi she made a speech yesterday, so did Joe Biden, saying that you know we're gonna we're gonna fight back against this. This is why we need you to vote for us in November, which I predicted this was coming. Is I feel like this was something that the Democratic Party kind of held in their they kept this card in their back pocket, and now they're pulling it out because they know that Joe Biden is doing so poorly that they really needed a reason for you to come out and vote for them uh, in the midterms. But to give you an example, Nancy Pelosi endorsed Henry Quayler, who is not pro-choice. And he had a candidate that was running against him who was pro-choice. Uh, so did Jim Clyburn also endorsed Henry Quayler. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries has also donated money to Henry Quayler. So to me, there just seems to be a lot of hypocrisy. You're telling us that you're going to fight for women's rights and you need us to donate to you to do that. But at the same time, you are endorsing and supporting Democrat candidates that are against women having that option. 
Oh, it's it's blank hypocrisy. I could, could not agree with you more, Sabrina, that this is just shameful hypocrisy on the part of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and all their crocodile tears uh, about the demise of Roe and really who's going to pay the price for their uh, unwillingness and inability to act. It's primarily poor and working class women and LGBTQ people in multiple states who are going to face this uh, attack and, and you know, pay the price for it. You know, they're going to have to forego several hours of pay, several days of pay, maybe even face job loss just to be able to go to another state to get their bodily autonomy fulfilled. And uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's also important to see that this hypocrisy is being seen through by a lot of people. I don't know if you saw this video that actually went viral from Friday night where uh, thousands of protesters in Houston, in Texas, were protesting, you know, about this shameful ruling and uh, Beto O'Rourke, you know, this Democrat, this, uh, you know, fancy Democrat shows up trying to capitalize, again, in a hypocritical, in, in, in complete hypocrisy, trying to, um, you know, make hay out of the protest, trying to act like he's on their side. But it was gratifying to see these thousands of rank and file protesters. And, you know, by the way, this protest was organized by Socialist Alternative Houston, uh, and, I, and I urge your viewers, if you haven't seen this, search for this video on Twitter, or maybe Sabrina, you can link to it. But in this mm -hmm. video, you can see that Beto shows up there and these voters, I mean, these uh, uh, these protesters, the activists are not phased or confused. In fact, they the chant that they chant is, uh, uh, you know, vote, voting blue is not enough. Democrats, we call your bluff. In other words, millions of working people are understanding that this whole idea of oh you just vote blue just vote democrat it's not going to work and in fact that has everything to do that the clarity the, the the raised consciousness and the the loss of the raised consciousness of young people and the loss of credibility in their eyes of the democratic party has everything to do with the fact that we are heading into a midterm election where the democrats are going to pay a very big price for it every 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 uh, pollster has predicted that that's going to happen, uh, and you know, and, and they are doing nothing. I mean, right now, Joe Biden has uh, a heap of executive orders he could sign if he wanted to prove that the Democrats actually want to do do something. But I'm not holding my breath. I I, will, I I don't expect that to happen. We've also seen organizations like Emily's List and Planned Parenthood again failing to provide any kind of action. I mean, many of the protests. Socialist alternative organized, you know, in, in New York, in uh, Seattle, in Minneapolis, in Houston, as I mentioned. Why aren't these mass organizations, oh, you know, why aren't they calling for hundreds of thousands, millions, maybe even tens of millions of people to go out on the streets and protest? They could have done that, but they didn't do that. But instead, what did they do? These uh, Emily's List and Planned Parenthood, they, they, I think they're uh, donating some millions of dollars to get Democrats elected in November. Again, another failed strategy. So, but, but we cannot we cannot be party to that. We have the obligation on the left to provide genuine leadership and we have to explain to people that that voting blue is not enough and people are understanding that. Yes, it, it does make me happy to see more people are waking up to the fact that the two-party system is just not, is not helping us. And one thing I really wish that more people would address is the fact that why are we in this situation to begin with? Why is it that it seems like no matter who we elect into office, they don't do anything for the people? And one of the things that I tell my viewers oftentimes is that 
you have to follow the money that both parties are bought by Wall Street. So they serve corporate interests. And I think one of the things that I've struggled with is getting more people to understand that it's not so much about the candidate that you elect to Congress or to the, the, the president office. It's not so much about that because they're still going into a system that is bought and paid for. And I think some people don't want to hear that because I think they feel that they want to have some hope here when it comes to electoral politics. And I always encourage them to look at previous movements in this country that have been successful. The civil rights movement was not done through electoral politics. The women's rights movement was not done through electoral politics. And I don't understand how we went from that to we have to vote away into getting some type of change in this country. No, you're totally right, Sabrina. I mean, just just simply electing personalities, you know, or, uh, or falling for personality politics is not going to be the answer. In fact, you're dead right. Roe v. Wade itself, this is important for us to look at the history at this moment in the wake of the Roe defeat, that Roe v. Wade was won in the first place, not through, you know, electing this or that Democrat. It was not won through some sort of benevolence of a Supreme Court. Uh, it was certainly not won through any kind of clever bipartisan, whatever, maneuvering by the Democrats. It was won purely, as you said, because millions of people understood that it is time to change society in many ways and and the women's movement had become you know a militant street movement and also a workplace movement with that was combined with tremendous strike action and at the same time the women's movement itself was buttressed and was buttressing other movements like the civil rights movement the native american you know indigenous rights movement environmental rights movement and uh, the anti-war movement so it's really incredible uh, and it's important for us to repeat this history again and again because otherwise there's a danger of having an ahistorical and inaccurate understanding of political processes that uh, Roe v. Wade was won in the Nixon era and it was won through a majority ruling of a heavily Republican Supreme Court. It was a majority Republican Supreme Court. Yep. There were Nixon nominees, for Nixon appointees for God's sake in that Supreme Court, and yet they were the ones who ruled in favor of Roe v. Wade. Why? Because the ruling class, the capitalist class as a whole at that time, was so fearful of the mass movement and the militancy of that struggle. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't only that millions of people had taken to the streets and were engaging in strike action. It was also the consciousness at that time. And this goes to the heart of the question you asked, Sabrina, which is that why is it that people are turning to electoral politics now? Because there's been a backslide in consciousness you know, in the last 50 years. And at that time, one of the reasons the Roe v. Wade was won and the, the Vietnam War was ended, and in fact, the principal reason was the ruling class was so afraid of the consciousness at that time. There was a very anti-establishment and even anti-capitalist consciousness at that time. And they were forced, they the ruling class were forced to make so, some concessions, the ending of the war obviously was a major deal, uh, but also Roe v. Wade, they were, they, they were forced to make certain concessions because they were afraid that if they did not, it would ra radicalize people more and lead to maybe even more, even sharper revolutionary consciousness. And that's where we need to get. So that's our task now to rebuild the consciousness brick by brick, all the things that we lost because of the 
backlash against movements. I mean, you know, there's an ebb and flow in movements. And at this moment, we have huge potential to rebuild that, but it's not going to be rebuilt on the basis of false ideas. And that's why we our main battle is against the peddlers of those failed ideas. And we have to be bold and unrelenting in our fight against it. And so if AOC is willing to call for some militant action, I don't, I don't expect that she will, but if she is willing to, then I will be on her side. But if she, if she fights against force the vote, if she does not provide leadership, then we have to boldly call out because it's not about any personalities or individuals. It's about what's the way forward. Agreed. Um, I want to get your opinion about Nina Turner's uh, previous elections. So last year, Nina Turner ran for Congress. It was a special election. Uh, Chantel Brown won. AOC endorsed uh, Nina Turner. Bakari Sellers endorsed Nina Turner, although I would argue Bakari Sellers was not the right person to receive an endorsement from, but that's a whole nother story. Um, and then she didn't win. Chantel Brown won. This year, same thing. Ran against Chantel Brown. Only this time, Chantel Brown was already in Congress. She received backing from the Progressive Caucus. Chantel did. Nina Turner did not. Uh, and that includes like some of her friends and, and, and comrades, members of the squad that chose not to support or endorse her. Um, I have a clip here I want to play. Now, this is from Status Quo. Jordan Sheraton, he interviewed Nina Turner. He asked her how she felt about the squad choosing not to endorse her or come out to support her this time around. And I just have to play uh, a couple seconds of this, and I want to get your take on this. Uh, let's keep it real. The squad did not come in here for you. AOC came in five minutes before. Uh, you know, they, they had their reasons. We can't endorse an incumbent. Uh, who are the Pinos? Uh, and did, did the squad and the broader progressive movement let you down? I don't, want, I don't want to get into the squad, okay? Some of those women are my friends. Um, some people were threatened. Threatened? Threatened. By who? And, you know, I don't want to get into the threats, but they were threatened. So, you know, look, I want to leave them to the side. I will say that the Congressional Progressive Caucus was wrong. They were wrong. And I was really glad to see Congresswoman Jaya Paul in the Punchbowl article kind of allude to they need to change their the way that they do this that came from the pressure of the movement itself otherwise it wouldn't have been noticed i mean she did mention you know crypto billionaire coming in and that kind of thing and maybe that's not the way we should endorse the progressive caucus has got to show that they're different than the blue dog caucus because if they're not then they might as well just go ahead and unite with them I want to get your opinion about that, Shama. So basically, she said that members, certain members of the squad were threatened that basically if they supported Nina Turner. Later on, Jordan Sheraton did another video where he found out that some of those threats included them losing committee assignments, uh, having them or having establishment uh, Democrats uh, heavily choose someone to primary against against them. In fact, uh, Rashida Tlaib's dealing with that right now. There's a pack put out against her from establishment Democrats like Bakari Sellers. Um, I know Cori Bush is also facing a tough primary coming around. So that is why they did not offer their support for Nina Turner. And I want to get your opinion about that because 
I, for one, like I said, I, I'm done with voting in the duopoly. If I do vote for someone, it's going to be independent or third party. But I have to admit, this really did make me feel some kind of way that they would choose not to even support Nina Turner, considering how much Nina Turner has supported them and that they were supposed to be this firebrand going into going into Congress and pushing back on the establishment. They were supposed to cause a hostile takeover is what we were told. And for them to kind of fold just because they may lose committee assignments, well, that's the kind of pressure you're gonna go up against when you're running through the Democratic Party, which is already corporate. So that really made me feel some kind of way that they chose not to back her. And I wanna get your opinion about that. Yes, I think, um you know, let's let's accept for a moment that that indeed happened. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened. That they were threatened with committee, you know, losing committee assignments and uh, the Democratic Party uh, establishment primarying them and so on. Uh, but you're 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 on point in the sense that it is that is if 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 we accept that okay, well, you know, well they were like as Nina Turner was is saying. Of course, I completely disagree with what she just said. Um, if we were to accept that logic that, well, you know, they were threatened, so, you know, don't blame them, they are friends. Well, then that's just, um, you know, that's just a race to the bottom. It's, it's a completely bankrupt idea that, well, because they're going to threaten you, they, meaning the politicians and the machinery that represents the ruling class, they're going to threaten you, you can't do it. Well, of course they're going to threaten you. What did you think was yeah. going to happen when you said, you are going to actually fight for working people and get elected to Congress. What did you expect was going to happen? You know, you th the, so this, I think this, this again, you know, obviously we, you know, we have our critique of the squad, but I think we should understand that this is, this is um, the, the questions that this brings up is the fundamental, uh, uh, is part of the fundamentals of building a successful movement and ultimately building a successful revolutionary movement to, uh, built for a socialist uh, society as opposed to a capitalist society because that's simply not working for us, which is that uh, we cannot expect the ruling class to willingly agree to our positions and our analysis for why we need a change in society. So in other words, uh, of course they're going to oppose you if you decide to support Medicare for all or $15 an hour. You have to have a strategy to fight against that, and it is simply not good enough. I don't care how good your intentions are, it's simply not good enough for you to say, well, I was threatened, so I can't do anything. No, uh, you, look, look at the, look at the um, adversaries that Socialist Alternative and my office went up against, and here we are, almost 10 years later, not only still standing strong, having won, essentially won three re-elections on top of our first election, but also having won historic victories. How did we do all that? Is that because, and again, you know, what I'm about to say, Sabrina also touches on the earlier point you brought up. I think it is a very important point about local versus federal. A lot of people would like to believe that, well, let's start left politics locally because it's too hard in Congress, we can do it locally. I mean, there is some truth to that, logistically speaking, organizationally, in the sense that generally they tend to be smaller scale campaigns. And to that extent, it's true. And we do have to be, strategic in you know choosing which campaigns to um, to launch on the left obviously we don't want to be sledgehammerish in our approach however that's a very small part of it again for the most part expect 
rather expect that if you are going to actually fight for working people, expect the whole of the machinery to be tooth and nail against you. And that is why that it is a non-starter for us to propose any kind of political strategy, whether it's electoral or social movement based uh, on the basis of one or two people. This has to have organization. That is why Socialist Alternative and I are so relentless in insisting that the working class needs our own party because, you know, it, we did not one, win all these campaigns, let alone the $15 minimum wage and all the renters' rights that we have won because of just me. Yes, whom you elect and whom you run as candidates on the left absolutely matters. You need somebody who has a proven track record of having shown courage and, uh, and uh, of somebody who does not make it about themselves or their ego, who is, you know, in fact, one um, touchstone is, you know, pick somebody who's genuinely reluctant to run. Don't don't pick somebody who wants to run. Uh, that's, I, I think, one, one rule of thumb, although not all of it. However, again, that's not enough. You have to have an organization. We won these victories uh, because Socialist Alternative is an actual cohesive organization that uh, has worked to build these movements in the working class and because we have had good very powerful strategies to fight against big business so in answer to this whole question of oh they're threatening you they're going to primary you well guess what happened in 2019 against us when we were running for re-election two of the latina women council women of color council members ran a candidate against me and they openly told me and they said every to, to the press that we're running a candidate against her because we, even though we agree with her, she's not nice or she doesn't work with us or whatever, you know, or, or all kinds of personality attacks. Well, what did we do? We fought back openly. We did not try to be, I did not, you will not catch me in a media interview saying, don't criticize them. They're my friends. No, anybody who works for the establishment and effectively undermines the movements of working class people and you know and and pushes back against their needs they're not my friends i'm not there to make friends and so if you don't understand that when you go into the halls of power under capitalism and if you claim to fight for working people you're not there to make friends they're not your colleagues this is not a normal workplace where obviously in a working you know in a working environment you we should build working class solidarity and that's what part of what unions is all about but when you are representing the interests of ordinary people in the face of people who, who represent, uh, you know, antagonistic interests, you're not there to make friendships, you're not there to build your career, you're not there to be collegial to them, absolutely not. And do not apologize for standing up for working people and they will paint all kinds of, you know, sort of horrific things about you. I mean, I, I, I've lost yep. count of the things that they say about me, you know, the bad things that they say about me, but they're, they're, but they're going to. And in fact, as I've often said, if they don't say those things about me, I would worry that I was selling working people out. You know, if, they, if the establishment was ever happy with me, I would seriously worry about what I was doing wrong because I expect that if I was doing my job right as uh, a spokesperson for ordinary people, then the ruling class will be upset at me. And this is the point that people need to understand. It doesn't matter whether you're running locally or you're in Congress. This is the same story. If you're, If you refuse to either sell out or be marginalized, expect the whole machine to be against you. And so what do you do? You build your own firepower. How? By having your own political organization like Socialist Alternative, like a new party for working people, and by building movements on the ground 
work outside city hall not inside city hall agreed and this brings me to bernie sanders because um Sorry, I had a little bit of echo. This brings me to Bernie Sanders. And the reason why I bring him up is because Bernie Sanders, he ran in 2016. He kind of came out of the Occupy movement or maybe not came out of the Occupy movement, but he took that message. It's about the 99% and put it into a campaign. He didn't win in 2016. He ran again, 2020. Same thing. We saw what the DNC did to, to Bernie Sanders again. Obama came in, made a phone call, told people to drop out of the race. Uh, I would argue that we don't have fair elections in this country. I think that's part of the problem. But the other problem, too, I think the mistake that Bernie Sanders made was running through the Democratic Party. I think if he would have ran as an independent or even third party, even if he didn't win, I still think that would have really sent a message to the people. But what happened was he ran through the Democratic Party. We had this Occupy movement. Obama came in and stopped that. He took that message, ran it through the Democratic Party, lost two election cycles in a row. And then he told us at the end to just go ahead and vote for Joe Biden. And just like that, he left his movement. He walked away from it. So we had nobody else leading this movement anymore. And so this is the problem I think I have with Bernie Sanders is that at the end of the day, I feel like he didn't want to go the way of Ralph Nader. So he just decided, you know what, I'm just going to go along with the Democratic Party, forget the movement. And so people are still struggling. We still don't have Medicare for all, even through a pandemic. It's like this is the fear that I have of having someone who's already a politician in D.C. And Bernie's independent, but a politician in D.C. And they they take these these ideas and say, let's create a movement. But once the campaign is over, the movement is gone. I, I think it's uh, absolutely true that uh, Bernie Sanders uh, could have, could have, uh, sorry, or rather would absolutely have provided a much better example of a way forward had he run as an independent. In fact, um, I don't know if you know, but um, I spoke alongside him, I believe in September of 2014, it was when the People's Climate March was happening in Manhattan, and I urged him publicly to run independent in in his upcoming campaign. And he said that he didn't want to do that. And I don't remember his exact words of paraphrasing him. I think he said something like, I don't want to run an educational campaign. And what he meant by that was I want to actually win. I don't want to run a campaign in, you know, in, in, in just in name. But in fact, what uh, and, and our response at that time, and we of course, we were proven right by the future is that, well, they're not going to let you win. I mean, how can you expect that the democratic machinery is going to let a campaign of um, uh, a political revolution against the billionaire class win inside a party that represents billionaire interests? I mean, it, that just doesn't happen. I mean, that's a very basic misunderstanding of class forces. You know, there is there is a, a fundamental antagonism between the ruling class. Uh, and their representatives and the interests of the working class. And so if you have a party which, regardless of his rhetoric, as you said, Sabrina, ultimately supports Wall Street interests, why will they support uh, a campaign that is against those Wall Street interests? I mean, that's the problem. That's the basic problem. And so not only did he not win, which we had predicted that the Democratic uh, Committee would not let let him become the candidate, but also as far as education, he provided tremendous miseducation because if had he run as an independent in to begin with, 
then it would have shown what it takes to build, you know, to build an independent campaign. Uh, or once he was out of the primaries, at that time we restarted a petition which actually got um, uh, well over 100,000 signatures, where we said that he should he should run independent. And uh, this was the movement for Bernie campaign that he should run independent. And on top of that, launch a political organization coming out of that. Had he done that, I have no doubt. You know, millions of people would have joined the organization. Socialist Alternative and I would have joined the organization also because we want to be part of the, you know, the building of such a new party that would have that would have provided maybe the building blocks of a new party for the working class. But he did not do that, and he he never intended to do that. And and I think he did provide a real service to the movement by running an unabashedly working class campaign, uh, and sh and showing that actually there is potential to unite massive numbers of people in the South, for example, mm -hmm. on a working class program. You know, all the people that the Democratic establishment writes off as um, irredeemably right wing. It's not true. I mean, a lot of people can be won over. Uh, it's not going to be straightforward. But Bernie showed that if you run on $15 an hour, and at this point, it should probably be $25 an hour, uh, and, you know, Medicare for all, taxing Wall Street to fund our needs to make university free, that we can win a lot of people over. So that's one thing that was proven through the 2016 campaign. But the stra political strategy does matter. And the strategy of running to the Democratic Party is simply uh, not working. And we've also seen, uh, as, as you said, the, the whole promise of the firebrand squad has also dimmed. And so where do we go from here? We have to talk about building new organizations for the working class. Agreed. Um, I want to get your opinion about money and politics, because I feel like this is the root of, of a lot of the problems that we have in the political system. Do you feel that it is even possible? And I bring this up because when Bernie Sanders was running, one of the things that came up was ending Citizens United. And I think this was something Elizabeth Warren spoke about as well when she was running here in Massachusetts. And then it just seemed to kind of fade away. I don't hear people talking about it as much anymore. And I'm wondering, is there a way or do you believe that you can get corporate money out of politics? And if so, how do you feel that could be done? I mean, in, in, a, in some sort of uh, long term or fundamental way, I don't believe it can be done on the basis of capitalism because uh, Capitalism is a system that, you know, it's not like it's not working well right now. Capitalism's very existence, very essence is to consolidate more and more wealth in the hands of a few at the top at the expense of the needs of the many. That is the, that's the DNA that's in the DNA of capitalism. And so, uh, I, I mean, we should fight for every reform possible. That is why as socialists, as Marxists, we in fact have demonstrated that we are some of the best, as, as revolutionaries, we are some of the best fighters and perhaps the best fighters for reforms because we won the $15 minimum wage. The Democrats did not. And they, to date, they haven't. We won the Amazon tax in Seattle in 2020, despite massive opposition from all these Latina so-called progressive Democrats, for example. Um, but we did it because we are clear that the the I mean, I mean our analysis of capitalism provides the clarity to us that the bosses 
will never be on our side. The politicians who represent them will never be on our side. And so that's why, what does it take to build? So in that sense, uh, I absolutely think we can win many reforms under capitalism, perhaps even including something like, uh, you know, overthrowing Citizens United. But at the same time, I think that the best way to go about it is to uh, run campaigns like we have run because that's what's going to really energize the mass of people. I don't believe that at this moment, if you go to millions of young people and just talk about money in politics, that that's by itself going to energize people. Instead, what we should do is precisely what we have done, but you know, we have done it in a, on a very smaller, small scale in a small city. We need this you know, on a much larger scale nationwide, which is building a new party for uh, working people and then running campaigns, not just electoral campaigns, but also social movement campaigns through that political organization, which will in every way be a pushback against the money in politics, you know, without saying it in so many words. So, in other, so just to give you an example, when we ran our first city council campaign in 2013, Sabrina, you know, we were a very clear anti-corporate campaign. We weren't, we, we, and, we, and we, we didn't just do it, we shouted that from the rooftops. We said, we shouted it from the rooftops. We are an anti-corporate campaign. We are never going to take money from the bosses. And by the way, the bosses are not about to give us any money because they're very, very clear which side we are on. And that's because we are unabashed in, in declaring which side we are on. It's important, you know? So when we talk about our politics so openly, the Democrats often like to paint me and us as, oh, they're just showing off or she makes it about herself. No, absolutely not. We have a political and moral obligation to be uh, to put our politics front and center because that is what energizes working people. Because a lot of people are understandably uh, disenchanted with politics because who, who represents them? So why should you care about politics, right? But when you have a campaign that is genuinely fighting for working people, then you have to make it very clear what you're standing for. And that is how we were able to win the campaign. But the reason I bring this up is that when we ran in 2013, there were Democratic Party operatives who came to me and had private conversations with me and said, you know, I would really like you to win. I don't think they understood how clear we are. That I think that at that time they thought that they could get me to sell out, you know, little by little, but now they know that they cannot. Uh, but at that time they said things like, you know, uh, I really want you to win, but uh, you have to take corporate money. How can you not take corporate money? because you can't win without taking corporate money. Well, we showed you can win without taking corporate money. As a matter of fact, you can win when you shout from the rooftop that you're not taking corporate money because that is precisely what energizes ordinary people to donate to your campaigns. And then it's not just about donating, you know, we unleashed uh, uh, just a uh, never before seen ground game of door knocking and tabling and leafletting, which is what, and, and, uh, and leading with concrete demands like $15 an hour, like rent control, like the Amazon tax, that is what won us the campaign. But what has happened since then? No progressive in Seattle now takes corporate money, at least openly. So in other words, you can see a situation where uh, so-called progressives uh, have to um, live up to a higher bar created by the left, like by us, but they are still not on the side of working people. So the same Latinas who didn't take corporate money in their campaigns were the same ones who ran a candidate against me, were the same ones who fought tooth and nail against the Amazon tax. So in other words, it, there can also be a danger of 
those things becoming a cosmetic change, you know, and then still representing the interests of the ruling class. That is why I'm saying that while we fight for reforms and we should fight doggedly for every reform, we also have to relentlessly point the connection between what we are fighting for in the immediate to the nature of the capitalist system itself and explain that it is not going to be enough to fight for reforms because it will just, capitalism has an amazing malleability. It keeps adapting itself to every new situation, but that's, it's never going to work for us. I want to get your opinion about third parties. So this has become a hot topic recently, especially with movements for a people's party, although it's not a actual political party per se, um, but that's something that they're trying to do. How do you feel about third parties? And the reason why I ask this as well is because the Green Party's had some issues, although nationally they've had some issues, but locally they win. Same thing with the people that run independents. An independent candidate just won mayor in Illinois. Um, couple days ago. So I, this is what I tell people that when it comes to the local level, I do see Green Party candidates winning races. I see independents uh, winning races. I see libertarians. I see socialists winning these races. Uh, it seems like the difficulty is when they have these national uh, campaigns. I want to get your opinion about third parties and if you think that that is the better option or do you feel like there's going to be issues with third parties as well? I mean, to some degree, as I said before, yes, I think we have to uh, examine each campaign from a tactical standpoint. And so wherever the left can run viable campaigns locally, we absolutely should do that. And as I said, yes, to some degree, there is a logistical component to camp running campaigns and local campaigns might be easier than national, you know, like congressional campaigns. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a very small part of the story, honestly. The larger part of the story is... Um, for example, what what kind of campaigns are these left candidates running? Uh, in other words, it is not, and, and what are they achieving once they are in office? In other words, it's not simply about accumulating independent or left or third party positions in number. It's not about accumulating the number. It's about what they act, what we can actually accomplish. So I would say, at the risk of, of uh, sounding maybe a little disproportionate, I, I would say that um, socialist alternative has, you know, we just have one elected position in Seattle. We're a small organization. We don't have any delusions of grandeur. I mean, we don't pretend to be the new third party. We, we're calling for a new third party and we want to be part of it. However, I think it is accurate to say that even though we are, socialist alternative has one elected position, uh, and the D, between the DSA and the Greens and other independents, they probably have 150, 200 elected positions. And yet, which of those positions stand out in any remotely any in any way in the way that we have proven ourselves? So in other words, I really uh, think we should warn ourselves that it's not about accumulating more and more candidates. Yes, more would be better, obviously, but uh, but it's not just just about the number. It's about what we actually run the campaign on and what do we do when we when we win office so for example when we run campaigns we're very clear we're you know because well, we're not i mean we're not running first of all when we're never running on personality or individual qualities or whatever it's about the fighting program and every campaign that we have run has come with concrete demands and we have won those demands many of those demands uh, because we uh, use a movement building approach to the electoral campaigns themselves. And then once we 
won the office. When we took office in 2014, again, we took a movement building approach to using that office. I don't. I really don't see very many other examples of this. Uh, a rare example that I can think of is uh, council member or alderman Byron Sikcho Lopez, who was a DSA elected in Chicago. He's currently serving. He has shown tremendous courage. But again, it's the rare exception to the rule where you have all these DSA candidates and other left candidates, and they really are not using the position in the way that they have to. Uh, sometimes they are, um, you know, sometimes they are irrelevant, and sometimes they actually sell out, you know, or a halfway sell out or whatever. So in other words, I think uh, whether or not we support a left campaign really does come down to what kind of campaign they are running and uh, what do they do once they win office? And we have to have a high bar for what we want to do with these elected offices. Agreed. Shama, I have one more question for you because this is one that my viewers ask me often on the show when I said, I'm just going to ask Shama herself. Do you ever think that you would consider running for a Congress position and not running through the two-party system? For example, I would like to see you primary challenge Pramila Jayapal. That's just me. But have you have you thought about that? I mean, just in the spirit of how we have run all our campaigns in socialist alternative and, and then the principles that we believe in, uh, in in politics, it would never be an individual decision. Obviously, you know, when we ran the first campaign itself, you know, when when I became the candidate for socialist alternative, it was not an individual decision. In fact, uh, some of your viewers might know this. I was extremely reluctant. I was quite actually annoyed that uh, my name was being put forward uh, and I resisted as much as I could. However, democratically, our organization decided that who the candidate should be, what the campaign platform should be. You know, obviously, I was part of those discussions and I played a big role in formulating the campaign itself. But ultimately, my, my point is that it has to be the democratic decision of the organization as a whole and the decision itself uh, again, as Marxists, we take a very scientific approach to political analysis. So uh, when we run a campaign, it will be based on, oh, is there um, a tactical advantage here? Like, you know, is there an opening here? What kind of demands will we bring up? Who is the candidate who will be, be best suited for this position? Like, you know, maybe I won't be best suited in, in another situation. Maybe another candidate would be best suited. In that sense, it's a scientific and democratic process of decision making. Sorry for being long-winded, but that's the process we would take uh, to decide if we would run for um, a different office as well. Awesome, Shama, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people find you on socials? So you can go to my uh, city council Twitter account, that's CM Shama, that is CM, and my first name, K-S-H-A-M-A, all one word, like, you know, council member Shama, or you can um, uh, go to socialistalternative.org, which is my organization's website. There's a join form there. You can, uh, even if you don't want to join, if you, if you want to join, fantastic. You should definitely write to us. But if you don't want to join but want to find out, also feel free to write to us. Somebody will definitely respond. Uh, and uh, if you um, uh, want to write to me personally, feel free to message me on Facebook or on Twitter, direct messaging. We're, we're very available and accessible. Awesome. Shama, thank you so much. Talk to you later. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thanks for listening. 
You can watch the video of this podcast at Sabby Sab's channel on YouTube.